Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I've got some advice that might just help you to formulate the perfect strategy for getting closer to whatever it is you want from life, plus some tips and tricks to overcome the nerves that can be debilitating in those big moments. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. As ever, I want to start this episode by saying a massive thank you to every single one of you for joining me wherever you are in the world, however it is you're listening or whatever it is you're up to whilst listening, every single one of you is much appreciated, believe me. Um, I have this week jumped onto somebody else's podcast for a change, not just my own. This week, I spent some time, quite a long period of time actually, talking in a really intense and fascinating conversation with Dr. Max McEwen. Dr. Max McEwen is a renowned psychologist, an award-winning author, somebody on the speaking circuit, the same as me, uh, a very much understood and listened to voice in the world of particularly corporate strategy. A lot of his life's work has been focused around strategy for life, but also in that corporate sense. How does a business formulate a strategy to get the end result they want to get to? And Max has produced a book uh, around 10 years ago now that's still selling in massive numbers. It's a very important book. It's a book that I'm currently reading and thoroughly enjoying. Highly recommend it. It's called The Strategy Book. Uh, it had numerous editions and it's still going strong. That book is all around giving you tips and tricks and trying to understand how to formulate a plan or a strategy for your life or for your business to get from where you are now to where you want to be with whatever it is you have around you. And of course, we spent an hour and a half on his podcast, which you'll be able to hear shortly. It's not out yet, but I will let you know. Um, talking about how Formula One strategy compares or how the Formula One world compares to much of the world that him and I go and speak to in the speaking uh, roles that we both perform. When we go to the corporate world, we travel around on this speaker circuit talking to organisations about how they can apply some of these learnings that I've had from Formula One to their completely different industry. So the conversation was centred around strategy. But interestingly, Almost none of that hour and a half conversation was specifically around race strategy. And of course, the obvious assumption when anybody asks me about strategy and when we're talking about Formula One, the general assumption and the jump to place is to talk about race strategy. And of course, it is very similar in terms of its principles. Race strategy is almost a sort of miniature version or a microcosm of the strategy that a Formula One team and anyone can apply to the wider world. On a very basic level, race strategy is about getting from the start of the race, the point where the lights go out, to the chequered flag in the most efficient way, in the quickest way possible, in a way that's going to overcome your rivals and achieve the kind of results that you think you deserve or that you hope that you can achieve. It's not always going flat out from start to finish, as we all know. That's a potentially a foolish way to run your race because you'll run out of tyres, you'll run out of fuel, you know, you're not maximising for the particular result that you want. So race strategy is a really interesting area to look at, but the conversation whilst we touched on that was also talking about the bigger strategies at play in Formula One. And the reason I wanted to bring it into today's podcast is because there were a number of things that we discussed on that podcast that I think aren't just relevant to the corporate world. I mean, this very podcast is all about taking the lessons I've learned in Formula One that I share with the corporate world on a weekly basis through my talks and my consultation, through the advisory roles that I have at different companies, and applying it to you, to you and I, the individuals of this world. There's no reason many of the same things cannot be applied to our daily lives. And that's why this very podcast started. So the conversation that Dr. Max McEwen and I had 
fascinating though it was, was talking about a much bigger picture strategy. And I thought we could extrapolate some of the key points from that and apply them to you and I. So let's begin. Strategy in itself is very much in its most simple form, I guess described as getting from where you are today with what you have around you to where you want to get to in the future, to get the results or to achieve the aims that you would like to achieve. Now, I've just described what race strategy is in the same kind of text. It's getting from the start of the race to the end of the race in a way that's going to achieve the results you think you can achieve or think you can get or you can expect with what you have. That means it might not be winning the race. If you've got a car that's not necessarily capable of winning a Grand Prix, but it might be achievable to get points, well, that's what you're going to optimise your race strategy for. It's scoring points because that would be a great result for you. That's your target. It might be beating a main rival. So you optimise your strategy for beating that particular rival. And we talked about lots of examples of that from the Formula One world in the podcast. And a really interesting one that cropped up was the idea in 2007 when Lewis Hamilton was in his very first year of Formula One. And of course, the big picture goal was by the by the end of the season, at least, was to try and win the championship. We were in the hunt. We were fighting against a guy on the other side of our own garage, of course, Fernando Alonso, who was also trying to do the same thing, trying to achieve the same thing. And we focused in on that race in 2007 in China, where Lewis Hamilton ended up in the gravel trap uh, because he stayed out on a set of tyres that were they should have pitted on many laps earlier. Uh, the circuit was drying and he stayed on wet to so the point where they almost wore away completely, he had no grip. And when he came into the pit lane, because he had no grip, he slid off and ended up in a gravel trap in the pit lane, beached, and his race was over. And along, although you can point to many uh, occurrences over the course of that entire season as to why Lewis didn't win the championship, that was clearly an obvious one towards the end of that season, where had he optimised his strategy for the bigger picture, the championship there'd have been a very different outcome. Instead, what he did on that day was optimise his strategy together with the team on his side of the garage. They optimised their race strategy to beat what they thought was their main rival, Fernando Alonso. Now, that was not just based on data. It wasn't just based on the results they needed to achieve. There was an awful lot of emotion in that strategy. There was a lot of emotional tension that had built up over the season. We all know the story of how that season played out. The two drivers and the two halves of our own team ended up almost hating each other. I'd go as far as to say it became that strong, the feelings between both sides of our own garage. And on that particular day, the side that Lewis Hamilton was on with his engineering team and his mechanics, with his crew, they optimised their strategy foolishly with hindsight. They optimised to beat Fernando Alonso, to get one over him because of the emotional attachment to that rivalry rather than thinking bigger picture, thinking about the overall big picture strategy, which was really just to get the points they needed to clinch the world title. They were clouded by emotion in that moment and their strategy went wrong and we know the result and it cost them quite dearly. Now, if we think about some of those lessons and apply them to our lives, one of the things that Dr. Max McEwen and I talked about was this idea of personal strategy. Go back to the definition, getting from where you are today with what you have around you to where you want to be. You think about that. And this is what I've been thinking about since we had our conversation early this week. I've been thinking about what does that mean for us? What can that mean for us? How can we on a practical level apply some of these strategic lessons, these strategic way of thinking to every day of our lives and the things that we're facing all of the time? And I even went through a process myself just this morning where I took a notebook and I wrote down, I put three headings. One was, where are you now? Question mark. And underneath, I took that to mean not just where am I in terms of my career or my stage of life, but what, are, what do I have around me? What skills have I developed up until this point of life? What are my strengths and weaknesses? And I wrote down key words to represent all of those things. So... Things like I wrote down as one of my strengths, I think I'm a pretty good communicator. I've built a career off communicating, communicating a lot of sometimes complex issues and complex technical uh, ideas in hopefully simple ways. Communication, I would say, is one of my strengths. 
weaknesses I put down as things that I can be easily distracted. I will have an idea and I'll be plowing on with that idea and then I will see something shiny in the distance and I'll think, oh, that looks lovely and I'll go off in that direction and I'll lose track of where I was. So that can be a weakness of mine. And I wrote down a whole series of keywords that represent the good bits about me, the not so good bits, the strengths, the weaknesses, the things that I think I'm good at, the things that I've built up in terms of skills, the experiences that I've had, the things that I think have got me to this point in my life. So that's where I am today, where I am in my career, those kind of little keywords just to represent those things. I then at the bottom of that page, I wrote down, where do you want to get to? Question mark as another heading. And I then wrote down what my goals and my targets are. And I wrote down a number of things. Again, just keywords to represent them. Not long, drawn-out sentences, just keywords. But it was things like, I would love to get my second book completed. That's a particular mission that I'm on right now. I want to get that book completed. And that idea of me being distracted is one of the things that typically gets in the way of that. I need to get that finished. I want to get it finished. And I would love that to be successful. So there's one particular outcome that I'm really keen to try and achieve. That would be a goal for me. There are lots of other things that I wrote down as well that I'm not perhaps ready to share just yet publicly, but I will in time. But I wrote keywords down to represent all of these ideas that I'd love to be able to achieve as an end point. Then I looked at the gap in the middle, the gap between those two things, the starting point and the end point. That's your strategy. Formulating a plan to get from the first part of that page to the bottom part of that page, that's your strategy. But the other part we have to look at are the things that might threaten your strategy. So I wrote down a strategy to get there. And it was things like formulating habits to do a certain amount of writing on my book every day or every week, for example. I wrote down lots of other parts of that strategy that might help me achieve many of the things that I'd like to get closer to that I might deem to be successful over time. And it was a really interesting process of writing down some little notes that I think will help to formulate a strategy or a plan for me to get from where I am now to where I want to be. But then on the other page, the page opposite, on the other side of that double page of my notebook, I wrote down a title or a heading that said threats to my strategy. And then with a little arrow from each one of those strategic points that I'd written, I wrote down anything that I thought could be a potential threat to that. So I wrote down, for example, this idea of completing a successful second book, something I'm really excited about and passionate about, and I'm desperate to get completed. A threat to that is that thing that I wrote down in the beginning, that weakness of mine, that easily distracted characteristic. That could very easily be a threat to me completing that particular goal. And so off the back of identifying that as a threat to that particular layer of my strategy, I have to then formulate a plan to get around that. And it might be that it's formulating a habit, as I said. It's creating a moment every day where I spend half an hour or so, whatever I deem it uh, feasible to achieve, formulating a plan that every single day that becomes such a habit that it's easier to do it than it is to not do it. That's what a habit ends up being. It's part of your routine that you don't even need to think about anymore. You no longer need to force yourself to do it, which is where I'm at right now because I'm currently building that habit. And it eventually gets to a point where it's automatic. Autonomously, you might get up in the morning or at whatever time of day you form that habit to kick in and it kicks in and you move seamlessly to the point where you sit in front of your computer and you start tapping away because every day that's what happens. That's a habit. So my strategy to get from where I want to get to, to where I am, sorry, from where I am now to where I want to get to is that I need to formulate a habit that's going to overcome the potential threat to that strategy And that will be, hopefully, how I overcome that particular challenge. And I wrote down a long list of these various things. And of course, what I ended up with is my final strategy. Well, I say final, it's my initial strategy. That's the strategy that I think I am best placed to go ahead and try and achieve many of these goals and targets that I'm looking at way into the future. And actually, that's exactly how businesses and how Formula One teams go about formulating their strategy. If you take a race strategy, for example, as a comparison, a team will look at where they are right now, where they are sitting on the grid, for example, after Saturday qualifying, and they might be at the back. If you're a back marker team, you're sitting somewhere near the back of the grid. 
you then have to look at things like, well, what do we have around us? What do we have available to us? What means, what strengths, what weaknesses do we have in our car, in our driver, in our team? What do we have available to us and where do we want to get to? And as I said earlier on, it may not be achievable to be striving for a race win if you're a backmarking team. But if you, on the rare occasion, are in positions to potentially score points, and those points that can be so valuable to the team can be a massive target. They can be like a race win for the teams nearer the front. Well, if that's your target, how are you best placed to get there? Which of your strengths can you utilise to get to that point? And then you look at the threats, the things that might get in the way of your potential strategy from working. Perhaps you get great starts. Perhaps a strength, that's a strength of yours. So utilising a start to make up places is clearly a key ingredient to that strategy working. What are the threats to that? Well, there's obvious threats that the driver could mess it up. The driver is a human interaction in the whole start process, a really key one, as well as any technology that's employed. How on earth could a driver mess that up? Could that be a potential threat? And how do you overcome that threat? Well, a really good way to overcome a threat like that would, of course, be practice. Lots of start practice in the build-up to that weekend, getting the driver comfortable on that particular circuit with the car in its current configuration, on that tarmac with the tyres that you're using. Get practice under that driver's belt so that it becomes almost muscle memory in that particular environment, and that will minimise the risk of that driver making a human error that could cost you so dearly. There's an obvious way to try and protect against the threat of your good start going wrong. And then, of course, you look at the cars around you. What other threats might there be to your strategy working? Well, of course, one of the biggest threats is the other cars on the grid. I think it was Ross Braun that once said, Formula One race strategy would be really easy if it wasn't for all the other cars. (laughs) It would be so simple, wouldn't it? It's the other cars that cause you problems and get in the way. And there are so many unknowns around that that we have no control over. But it's talking those through with the driver, talking about your position on the grid and what threat that might incur in the melee around a start. You're right in the midst of a bunch of cars, perhaps not the fastest, perhaps not the most talented of the driver pool. What can you do about that? Is there an element to taking more caution at the start, given where you're starting the race from and holding back for the first couple of corners and avoiding any particular crashes or melee that might occur, given that some circuits are more susceptible to that that than others? Formulating a race strategy has to take all of these elements into consideration. What's the start line performance been like of the cars that are around you? Do they buckle under pressure? Have they had poor starts in the build up to that race weekend? These are all key details that can go into formulating your race strategy. And if you want to optimise that race strategy for a particular result, you have to go through that process all the way through the race, simulating it, forecasting what you think are the most likely outcomes and talking through that with everybody involved, making sure everyone understands what those threats are, what the risks are, but also what tools you have available to you to overcome them. And we should be thinking, or we could be thinking, about our lives in exactly the same way. And so one of the things I thought I would task you with this week is trying to figure that out yourself. Go through a similar process to the one that I went through this morning. That was my first iteration. I'm going to go back and look over it. I'm going to tweak it. I'm going to try and simplify the process. And I may come back and talk to you about it in the future. But perhaps you guys can do the same sort of thing. Write down in a notebook some starting points of where you are right now, some goals or targets of where you'd love to get to in the future, and then try and figure out a roadmap or a strategy for how you might get there. But then, of course, go and look at that strategy and try and predict what could be your biggest threat. One of the really interesting elements of our conversation this week was some of those biggest threats can often be turned into some of your biggest opportunities. The idea that Formula One was facing an enormous threat of this environmental, the environmental issues, the sustainability issues coming over the horizon. I've talked about this before. That could have posed an existential threat to this sport, given that we race gas guzzling, noisy, petrol driven cars very fast around a circuit all over the world, having traveled with hundreds and hundreds of people, tons and tons of freight. It's not an environmentally friendly sport. Over time, that could become so socially unacceptable 
as a thing in society that people will just start turning off from their sport. People would turn away from it. They turn their noses up at it, particularly the younger generation that we would like to encourage to become fans of the future for this sport. So how on earth do you turn that threat into an advantage? Well, you do exactly what Formula One have chosen to do. Their long-term strategy, which they've looked at as a place they'd like to get to in the future, a place where the younger generation embrace the sport, the wider world sees Formula One as a positive influence on society, not a drain, not a drain on the environmental world that we live in. Something that can be inspirational to the youngsters growing up in this new world that faces so many threats, particularly from that sustainability and environmental position. So Formula One have thrown all of their attention towards this idea of, first of all, carbon net zero events by 2030, but even bigger than that, this idea of sustainable fuel technology, putting the brilliant minds of the Formula One engineering community into developing a technology that might not only help Formula One to become more sustainable, but by accelerating that development process, which inevitably happens in the Formula One space, because that's what Formula One does, by going through that process with these brilliant people, with this huge resource of engineering talent on the problem, we might just create a solution that might trickle down and transform the entire transport industry for the world. That may sound like a huge claim, but it's not out of the question. We could develop fuels that are A, sustainably produced, but eventually produce very close to zero or even zero emissions. Imagine that. Imagine all of your cars running on a fuel that was developed in Formula One and that being clean. Imagine the planes that we use to travel around the world running on a similar fuel. Imagine if all that came from this hotbed of innovation and engineering from Formula One because of some strategic thinking from the Formula One community where they looked at where they are today in a position facing a potential threat, something that would get in the way of a successful future for them, and then looking at that threat and flipping it on its head and trying to work out how on earth they could twist that threat into an opportunity. I am inspired by the way Formula One has taken on this challenge, and I have no doubt they will make a success of it. I don't know how that will go. Formula One doesn't know how that will go. And that's one of the beautiful things of strategy. There's no way with 100% certainty we can predict the path that we have to take to get from where we are now to where we want to be. We can formulate the best strategy we think we know how. We can come up with the best ideas and we can mitigate against as many risks as we foresee. But there are still many things that we don't know that we don't know yet. And they will crop up. They will get in the way of our plan. But having that strategic thought process will also enable you to navigate around those, to think on the fly, to adapt your strategy. Formula One teams have to do that during a Grand Prix all of the time. When the start doesn't go to plan, when a safety car comes out at an inopportune moment, when somebody crashes in front of you or you get a puncture, there is no way to predict getting a puncture at a random moment in a Grand Prix. But when it happens, you've got to think on your feet. You've got to think outside the box. And very quickly, you have to think of a new way to get to your end point as quickly and as efficiently as you possibly can. A new or adapted strategy. Those things come from having that adaptive and that strategic mindset in the first place. So by going through the process that I've just outlined in a very rough fashion to you, something I'd love to encourage you to try this week, you change your mindset. Not only do you write down those things which become then visual, they become ingrained in your mind, you start thinking about them more and more. Not only do you get a plan on a piece of paper, albeit a loose one at that point, but because you're thinking strategically, you then continue to think strategically as the plan unfolds, as the challenges crop up and the things get in the way, the things you hadn't foreseen. As they come around the corner, you're already in a strategic mindset. And so you can think strategically about how to navigate around those hurdles or over those hurdles that spring up seemingly out of nowhere. It's a really interesting way to start thinking about life, about your business and your company, about your job, about your career path, about your relationships. Anything, quite frankly, can, be, can have strategy applied to it to give you a more efficient path to the successful outcome that you want to achieve. Now, I know that 
pretty much all of you listening to this podcast or watching on YouTube, you're here because there is something in your life you'd like to improve. You'd either like to think differently about something or you'd like to achieve something that right now you might not be entirely happy with. You feel like you've got potential that you haven't yet fulfilled or you might be up against a challenge you just can't see a way around. If you're here because that's the way you're thinking and you have this mindset of being open to improvement, strategic thinking like this can be a really powerful tool. The fascinating conversation that I had with Dr. Max McEwen, I cannot wait to share it with you. I loved having it, but the impact that it's had on me since having that conversation has been profound as well because I'm already thinking very differently about the challenges I face in my life. So I encourage you to go through a process like that. Write those challenges down, write down where you are now, what you have around you, what tools you have inside your character, your experience, your skill set. What are the weaknesses that you think you have? Where do you want to get to and find a path from one to the other and then challenge every one of those strategic plans that you've come up with? What are the biggest risks or threats that might be posed against those? And then think again, how can you navigate around those threats? And there is your plan for the future. There is your strategy. It's not fixed. It's got to be open. It's got to be adaptable. But there's a starting plan. And as these things come up and as time moves on, as you learn more and more, revisit that plan, adapt it, tweak it, start again, write it out again. One way or another, strategic thinking should really transform how efficiently, how effectively you're able to get from point A to point B. And hopefully that should mean success. Okay, so just before I move on to part two, I'd love to just encourage you all. Many of you have done this, but I so thank you. But I want to encourage you all, if you can, leave me a review or subscribe or follow this podcast in whichever format you're listening. It makes a massive difference. Reviews, particularly in the Apple Podcast Store, make an enormous difference to how this podcast is then pushed to others. So please, please, if you could do that, it would be amazing. Not very many of you. I know many of you, most people, in fact, listen to this podcast on Apple. If you're doing that, just take a moment to send me a a five-star rating if you've enjoyed it and a very quick line of review. It means the world to me genuinely. Uh, Also, quick note, I have set up a bespoke YouTube channel for this podcast. So to keep these things separate from my other Formula One activities, by the way, which will be coming back in 2023, the live Monday night Uh, reviews of the Grand Prix live on my YouTube channel will be back for this season. Uh, I've missed them. I know many of you have, so I'll see you all there. But also, uh, I have set up a separate YouTube channel. It's called Pit Lane Life Lessons, where I put these these podcasts. So the video version of this podcast, where you can watch me chatting away through these topics, is on the new Pit Lane Life Lessons YouTube channel. I'd love it if you could go and subscribe to that. Tell your friends if some people would like to watch or listen even on YouTube. If you want to do that, go check it out. Thank you. Right, part two. We are on the brink of Formula One testing for 2023. Now, I've been there many, many times, of course, at my during my time at McLaren. I know how it feels on the night before, on the eve of going testing for the first time. This is the first time that the cars you've spent months and months and months pouring over, putting huge amount of effort into will not only take to the track for the first time. So you'll get to see how they're doing what kind of results you've created, but also you get to compare them with everybody else. But then so does everybody else. They get to compare what they've done to you. There's no more secrecy. There's no more hiding away in the comfort, the security, the safety of your own factory, where no one else can see what you're doing, where you can talk openly, you can work openly. You don't have to worry about hiding things away. All of a sudden, when you go testing for the first time, that changes. Now, we talked in previous weeks about the idea of the launches in the modern era and how many people are still hiding things at that point. They're protecting images of their car. They're putting fake images up. They're photoshopping key elements of the car out of the launch imagery. When it comes to testing, that's all gone. You have to put the car that is as real as it can be at that moment in time on track and in the pit lane in front of your direct rivals. Now, the way that feels on the very first day, the night before the very first day even, is nerve-wracking. 
for most people inside the team, you are concerned. It's a massive moment. Everything has gone into this, a massive amount of resource and time and energy. The amount of hours that everybody has spent getting this car ready, it's always last minute by the time it gets to the racetrack. The amount of hours that you're working as a mechanic and an engineer are ramping up towards the point where you go testing. And that's all very deliberate. That's not because teams are necessarily unorganized. That's because you want to give yourself the maximum amount of chance to keep the development going as long as possible before you have to finally commit to getting that car out into the real world. But when it does go out into the real world, it can be nerve-wracking moments. There's a huge, a huge amount of pressure on an expectation on the performance that that car is going to deliver. And within a team, you know pretty quickly whether you are miles away from your expectation or whether you're close to it. Now, I know that when you watch testing or you see the times, you see the commentators, you see people talking about it from the outside and you always hear the caveat, well, it's only testing, so it doesn't really matter. We can't take the times too seriously. And that's all absolutely true. But inside the team, you know, or at least you have a very good idea. And the reason for that is you get different data to the people watching on television. You get GPS data. You have the timing beacons with speeds. You get to measure top speeds yourself with your own car compared to that of the others. You get GPS data, which means that you can very accurately compare the pace around different elements and different parts of the circuit to your own car. And there's always the caveat of not knowing how much fuel's on board any one of the, the cars. But we all also know inside the teams that nobody's going to be going too far extreme on a regular basis. It makes no sense to run your car light for the whole of testing. Most people will be going something of middle of the road because that is the most representative fuel load and gives you the most accurate learning. And bear in mind, testing so restricted and limited now, there's no time to really be sandbagging in the way that teams might have done in, the, in years gone by. That very limited track time is so valuable to each team, they just have to get on and learn as much as they can about their car in real world conditions. And so as a result of that, everybody up and down the pit lane at least has some idea after that very first test of where they sit in a very broad and rough pecking order. Of course it can change and of course people bring developments to the car which shifts the order as they go through testing and even in the first few races. But you know pretty quickly whether you've created a duffer or whether you've created something that has enormous potential for that season. Whether you have matched, met, even exceeded your expectations or whether you've fallen very short. Those kind of details and that information comes pretty quickly inside the garage walls at that racetrack. And so as a result of that, the night before, as I said, can be very nerve wracking. It can be tense within that team because not knowing before the car hits the racetrack, not knowing is always the worst thing. And that's what I wanted to focus on a little bit in this particular part of the podcast. This idea of being nervous, not having an idea of what's about to happen and how we can perhaps overcome that. I have been through so many nervous moments, as we all have. I remember my first ever pit stop in Formula One was still to this day, all these years later, probably the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. I was probably, in fact, almost certainly underprepared for that very first pit stop. And I've talked about this extensively, but the team back then, because we didn't give it enough importance all those years ago, had no mechanism to enable me to be prepared enough. Today, things are very different. And today we have some tools and some practices and processes that help people to overcome those nerves and to deal with pressure in a much better way. I didn't have that back then. I was terrified. I was shaking like a leaf for that first ever pit stop. Today, I travel around the world speaking to many big companies, big audiences, thousands of people sometimes. The very first time I did that, I was terrified. I remember standing backstage waiting for my name to be called out by the announcer on the other side of a big curtain and I was shaking. I was, my heart was racing, it was pounding. I didn't want to go out. I wanted to turn around and run away. Back then I had notes on a card in front of me but I couldn't read them because my hand was shaking so violently, 
such were the nerves. Today, though, I'm waiting backstage, and as they announce my name, I am bouncing with excitement. I cannot wait to get out there, and I literally burst through a curtain, or from the side of stage, I burst on with a big grin on my face, and I'm full of energy, I'm full of passion, I've got smiles all over because I'm so excited. The final pit stop that I ever did at McLaren, and bear in mind, the final pit stop I ever did was in that famous race at the end of 2008, the race in Brazil where Lewis Hamilton won the world championship. But if you think about that race, it was that horrible race where it was going from wet to dry. We needed to get a fifth place and there were multiple pit stops because of the changing conditions. I was involved in all of those pit stops. Now imagine the pressure that I faced in that moment. Now way more pressure in that final race because of what was at stake than my first ever pit stop, which happened to be a nose change in the Australian Grand Prix at the very beginning of a season. We had no idea back then what sort of championship we were about to head into. And as it turned out, we weren't ever in championship contention. The pressure probably was a lot less than when it came down to the final race where we could win the biggest prize in the sport. And yet, my final pit stop, there were some nerves, but overriding that was adrenaline and excitement. I loved the process of a pit stop. I bounced out of the garage with that same energy and passion that I now bounce on stage when my name gets called out. So what's the difference? What's changed? The process is exactly the same. The outcome, the process that I have to go through, delivering a speech or delivering a pit stop is exactly the same. So what's changed between those first ones and the final ones? What's changed in my psychology? What's changed to stop me being debilitated by nerves to being fueled by excitement and adrenaline. Well, that's what I want to focus on over the course of this second part of the podcast, because there are a number of things that I think we can do and we can learn to help us. We all face big moments that we're terrified of, that we don't want to do, and we feel like we're about to fail. It's that fear of failure quite often that's debilitating. I was almost convinced in my first Formula One pit stop that I was going to mess it up for the entire team. The few practices that we'd done ahead of that race had been pretty awful. And so, of course, I was convinced that's what was going to happen in front of the world. There were hundreds of millions of people watching. Of course, I felt pressure. That pressure, in part at least, came because I had evidence. In my mind, there was evidence that there was a high chance I was going to mess this up because that's what the practices told me. The only evidence, in fact, that I had was a series of bungled and failed pit stops during the minimal practice sessions that we'd completed ahead of that race. So one of the things that we worked on at McLaren over the years, one of the tools that we have, of course, that's able to dispel some of those nerves and to create different sets of evidence in the minds of the people involved is going through practices to get it right practicing more and more in a much more strategic way, in a much more scientific way, practicing until we overcome the gremlins that we continually see uh, at times in practice. We didn't do that back in in the early 2000s when I first started. Today, we continue to go until we get it right. And if we can't get it right, we have to look at the process. Maybe there's something wrong with that. Maybe we need to tweak what we're doing or how we're doing it or tweak the tools that we're using to do it. But we create evidence in our minds that's positive, that's a positive affirmation that we can do it. And then if we have that evidence embedded in our minds, then, of course, we can much more easily refer to that when it comes to the big moments. We've done it before. We know we can do it. So there's a high chance we can do it here. Of course, that's not the complete story. And the pressure in the big moment, in the race day moment, is, of course, far different to practice when there's hardly anybody watching. But in those moments, and this is one of the first tips that I would give you, is I would think about those moments when it did go well. It's the idea of the repetition that you've been through, the actions, the physical actions. In terms of a pit stop, as an example, the pit stop consists of me in that moment, I was putting on the nose, the spare nose cone, my first ever pit stop. In those moments, that action was picking up the nose cone off the floor, walking over, and at the right moment, jumping into the front of the car where I'd line up this nose cone onto four pins on the front of the chassis where a couple of guys would do the catches up and I'd then leap out the way. And if you break it down, that's it. 
that's the process. It's a really simple process. If you think about the mechanics of what I was doing, there was nothing complicated about it. So what was it that was getting in my way that was causing all these nerves and these debilitating thoughts? These things that were getting in the way of me just performing a relatively simple task. And of course, what that was, was all up in my head. It was only thoughts. There was nothing about the mechanical side, the physical side, that I couldn't do. I'd proved that over and over again. I can do it. I could easily pick up a nose cone. Of course I can. We can all do that. I can easily carry that nose cone over to the front of the car. That's an easy process too. There's nothing about that that I can't do. Can I line it up on the four pins on the front of the chassis? Of course I can. Yes, it might be a little bit tricky to do it fast, so slow it down in your mind a tiny bit. It's actually relatively simple. There are four holes in the nose cone, four pins on the front of the chassis. You just slam it over the top of them, and then someone else does the catches up while you hold it. And as soon as the catches are done up, you walk away. There's nothing complicated about that. So when you break that process down and start to go over the mechanics, over the actual physicality of what you're about to do, it often simplifies it way more. And if you're focusing on those elements, there's less room in your mind for these crazy, debilitating, noisy, chaotic thoughts that are desperate to come in there. There's often moments in life, and this again, I guess, comes back to the strategy we were talking about earlier. There are moments when it's really good to zoom right out and to think about the big picture of what you're doing, about what your actions and how your actions impact the bigger picture in your company, in your business, what you do, how does that impact the end result of the company? What's the knock-on effect down the chain? What are the consequences of your actions and how do they affect the next person in line and the next person? And in the end, how do your actions affect what might be the end product for your business? Sometimes it's really important to do that. A lot of companies don't do that enough. It's one of the things that I actually encourage companies to do on a regular basis to make sure that everybody knows where they fit into the big picture. But in some moments in our world, it's much better to actually not do that. And actually doing that can be the thing that causes you a lot of problem. If you think about the pit stop example again, if we think about the big picture there, well, of course, you're going to start thinking about massive consequences of it going wrong, because big picture is, well, you're affecting one of the world's biggest sporting events. You've got hundreds of millions of people watching, millions of McLaren fans who are relying on you to get that bit right because their driver's race is at stake here. All of those people watching will be staring at you. What will they be saying? What will they be shouting at your televisions if you get it wrong? That's the big picture. There's no way that's going to help you in that moment. So in those moments, it's often much more effective to zoom right in. Don't zoom out at all. Zoom right in. Narrow your focus to the tiny bit that's just you. The bit right close around you. Those actions that I talked about. The process, the physicality, the actual process of what you're about to do. Picking up the nose cone, walking over to the car, popping it onto four pins and walking away. Break it down and zoom right in. And we can all do this in whatever it is we're trying to achieve. Whatever it is we're getting nervous about, it's normally zooming out that's the problem. When you're in your school play and you've got your line coming up, your big line in the nativity, we've all been there or we've seen our kids do it. The reason they fail to remember the line that they've said hundreds of times to us in the kitchen at home in the build-up to that play is because they're thinking about the big picture. They're looking out at the audience. They're seeing hundreds of eyes staring back at them. They're thinking about the consequences of getting it wrong. If they were able to zoom right in and think about the six words that they might have to say, words that they have said over and over again without problem. It's easy. Six words, we can all do that. That's really quite an easy thing. If they could zoom in and zone in on the the evidence that's in their mind of how many times they've actually said it really well and the reaction they got from their parents when they said it well. If they could focus on that, well, it would be easy, wouldn't it? It would take away all of the problems. 
And I'm sure many of you are screaming at your whatever it is you're listening to this on or watching. You're screaming, well, of course, that's what we should be doing, but it's not easy. How on earth do we go about doing that when we're in the high pressure moment? And the answer to that question is through practice. The answer is through doing it over and over again. And of course, that is going to take time. There is no really quick fix. But the very first step is through thinking about it. In the same way I talked about getting into a strategic mindset earlier, because when the challenges come up further down the line that you hadn't predicted, you're already in the right mindset to find a way around them, to strategize and find a way around those problems. The same thing happens the moment you start thinking about what you might do in those moments. Listening to this podcast is the very first step of putting you into that mindset. If you've got a big moment coming up, a job interview, for example, is another potentially scary moment. But what is it if you break it down? What is it if you zoom right in? It's a conversation between two people. How many times have you done that before? So many. Okay, it might be scary because it might be someone you've never met. But how many times have you had conversations with people you've never met before? How many times do you answer the phone and it's someone you've never met before, but you still have a conversation? How many times do you go into a shop and you talk to the shopkeeper that you've never met before? You've done it thousands of times. It's just communication, a conversation, a chat between two people. And I know there are so many more complications, so many more complicated layers on top of that. But if we can start to break it down and zoom right into the minutiae of that moment, forget zooming out, which is where our brain naturally wants to go. Forget that bit and zoom in. Don't worry about the consequences or what they might be saying the moment you've left that office. When they all get together and have a huddle and start discussing you, what are they going to be talking about? Forget all that. Forget what it means in the bigger picture, the grand scheme of your life. Zoom into the moment. What have you got to do? You've got to go in and you've got to answer questions that you already know the answers to, by the way, because they're almost certainly going to be questions about you. Nobody's better placed to answer those questions than you are. When you start to think about these things in that sense, in that context, you start to realise that actually it's a bit simpler than we make it in that moment. And thinking about that now before the moment is the very first step. Practicing it is what makes it seamless, is what makes it the natural go-to way to approach it. And that does simply take time. But the more we think about it, the more we rehearse this in our mind, just like the way we rehearse pit stops, the more we rehearse the big moment beforehand and tell ourselves about how we're going to zoom in. What is it? Is it really that complicated? No, it's not. It's really easy. You've done it over and over. The more we tell ourselves that, the more it's ingrained in our minds. And when the big moment does happen, we're far more likely to revert to that place rather than the place that's scary the place that can be terrifying. We have a fear of the unknown. That's what the nerves is. It's nerves because we're about to head into something that we don't know how it's going to go. I mean, it's an innate human characteristic. It's part of our long history of evolution. And it's an important part. You know, we had to be terrified of the unknown because if we didn't have that evolutionary need, if we didn't have that evolutionary trait the fear of the unknown, well, we'd have all wandered into caves years ago because we were inquisitive. We wanted to see what was inside and we got eaten by a lion. That's the way life was. So that evolutionary need to be scared of what we didn't know was inbuilt to protect us. It was there for survival. Today, though, much of the risk that we face in that unknown is not so serious. It's not about survival. And it's telling ourselves because evolution has struggled to keep up with the way that life has evolved. We rarely face a life or death threat that we get nervous about from this same unknown, this this process that we face on a regular basis. It's rarely because we're going into a life or death situation. Normally, it's about something far less severe, far more simple. And if we try and rationalise that in our minds based on the experience that we know we've got, the talent, the skills. These people, if you think about the job interview, have called you into that interview because they see, this company sees that you potentially could hold some value that they want. Well, there's something to build from. 
They already see some value and they haven't even met you yet. And all you're going to do is go in there and have a conversation with somebody on the other side of a desk, probably, where you talk about yourself. Something that you are the best placed person in the world to do. No one knows you like you do, so go in there and smash it. Zoom into the situation, don't zoom out. Now, the other part of getting nervous is actually a positive thing, right? Nerves can be a really good thing. They put you on the edge. They take you to a higher plane of potential. When I had my very last pit stop, I still had nerves, but they were excited nerves. They were full of adrenaline. I used those nerves to convert from fear into that excitement and that energy that I needed. The same when I burst out onto stage when my name's called out from the introduction. Of course, there are nerves. There's still some element of unknown, but now I've got so much evidence that I know what I'm doing, that I'm confident in what I'm doing. Now those the fear is all but gone because I don't have it. Of course, it could still go wrong. I could still mess up my lines, but now I'm confident enough to know that if I mess something up, if I stumble, if I say something that I didn't mean to, I'll own it and I'll make a thing of it. I'll make a joke of it. I have enough confidence to be able to do that now, even in front of thousands of people but I still get nerves. And the nerves are not something to try and banish altogether. They're not something to be afraid of in themselves. I bet you everybody who has big moments, I bet presidents and leaders of countries still get nervous when they have to make a big speech, when they're going into a big moment, when they're having to make a big decision, there are always going to be nerves. But if you can zoom in rather than zooming out, we can turn those nerves from fear into excitement, into positive energy. We can simplify the process in our mind and tell ourselves, literally tell ourselves, talk to yourself if you have to. It's a really interesting and, and actually can be quite a, a kind of crucial way to convincing your mind, saying it out loud. Tell yourself, all I've got to do is pick up this nose cone and walk over to the front of the car and pop it on the four pins. Just speak it out loud. You might sound crazy, but so what? I could do that inside my crash helmet when I was a pit stop mechanic. If you're backstage ready to, ready to go out and give a speech, just say it to yourself in a quiet corner. Talk to yourself out loud. Your brain hears evidence. Whether it's, whether it's true or not, your brain hears and listens to the things that you say. You could make up any story you like and an element of your brain will listen to it and it will now be logged in there. That's a piece of evidence that it'll refer to when it has to in the moment. So tell it something positive. Tell it something simple. Explain out loud exactly what it is you're about to do and how easy and simple it is, how many times you've done it before. If you've never done the thing before, by the way, you know, it's easy to say, well, I've never done it before, so how can I refer back to evidence? You may not have done the thing before, whatever it is you might be doing, but you'll have done things like it. You'll have done things that have got you to this position. If it's a job interview that's a little bit higher up in the, the sort of hierarchy than you've ever gone for a job before, fair enough. That can be a nerve wracking moment for many people. But you've probably been through job interviews before and you will have built up experience and skills and you will have talent that you've been invited into that job interview for. There's evidence. Talk to yourself about that. And as I said, talk out loud. The more your brain can hear positive affirmations of what it's about to go and do, the more it will refer back to that when the moment comes. Tell yourself how easy and simple the process is. Zoom in, do not zoom out in those big moments and practice that. Tell yourself you're going to do that. This is, I guess, in many ways, in the same way we started this podcast, it's a strategy. You want to get to a certain outcome and you might be starting in a certain place. One of the big challenges might be the nerves. This is a strategy for overcoming those nerves. Talking to yourself, explaining to yourself in a rational moment what might be much harder to explain to yourself in a moment where you don't have time for rationality, where the pressure and the intensity of that moment sometimes can cloud that rationality. So in the moment of clarity and rationality, tell it to yourself, explain it to yourself, program your brain, which is exactly what you're doing. You're pre-programming for a situation that you know will come further down the line and then you refer back to that pre-programming. To refer again back to pit stops, when we had 
big pressure moments in pit stops, like when something goes wrong, when a driver overshoots the marks. We do thousands of pit stop practice, and of course, the obvious thing is we want the perfect pit stop, the driver to stop on the marks, because then we know exactly what we're gonna do. We're in the right position, we're set, we're ready. But what if the driver overshoots the marks? Well then, what do we do? We've all got decisions to make about where we move to, when we move, do we try and drag the car back? What do we do? And that is a high pressure moment, let me tell you. Again, the world's watching. You can already start to see, if you zoom out, the race unraveling before your very eyes. Or you pre-program a set of instructions before that moment's even happened, knowing it's a possibility, you pre-program it in by going through practices where the driver overshoots the pit stop box. We practiced for failure in pit stops as much as we did for practicing the perfect stop. So that when that moment happens, there is no decision to make. We take away what could be seen as a difficult thing to do in a high pressure intense moment. When we've lost clarity and rationality, we take away the decision making moment because we've practiced it. We've already told ourselves what we're going to do. So our brains can refer back to that pre-programming and just kick into action. And the more and more we do that, of course, the easier it becomes. And all of us can utilise things like that to help us through the moments that we know might be coming. A job interview is a great example. You know that's coming. Practice the difficult moments. What would you do if you stumbled? What would you do if you tripped up and said something silly? Make a joke of it. Tell yourself you're going to make a joke of it. Even practice cracking the joke. These things will sound like madness and crazy to be sat there talking to yourself, but believe me, your brain is listening. That seems like a crazy concept. You can speak in your head to your brain, but it has a much bigger effect. It has a much bigger impact if your brain hears it coming out of your mouth, if it goes in through your ears, not just an internal dialogue, but an external one. It has a bigger impact on how that's ingrained in your memory and how then your brain can refer to it much later on. There is so much research and evidence based on that that tells us that is the best way. We can talk about drawing things, making things visual, writing things down. Another really good way to pre-program your brain. If you've written something down, the action, the motion of writing, seeing it, visualizing it on a page is another really good solid tool for pre-programming elements of your mind, what you need that you need to refer back to in a moment when you haven't got time to go through that much rationalization. Try these little tips and tricks over the course of this week. Try it in the small moments. Try it in the moments that probably don't really matter. The moments where you just get a tiny bit nervous, where you've got to go and have a slightly awkward conversation with your boss or with your partner. Just practice what you're going to say. Practice what you might say if it all goes wrong. Practice how you'll deal with the fallout of these things. Tell yourself that it's going to be okay. Tell yourself that actually it's a really simple process. It's two people having a conversation, something that you've done millions of times in the past. Try thinking about zooming into the situation and not zooming out. And I would love to hear how you get on over the course of the next week or so, trying some of these tools, some of these tricks, some of these little examples that I know have helped me. Many of them have helped me in my life. I have evidence to show they work. I know they've worked for me. Many of them will work for you. Some of them are ideas that I'm just starting to think about. My conversation with Dr. Max McEwen earlier this week has provoked a whole new train of thought around strategy, around strategic thinking and what that means and how it can be applied to our lives and to the businesses that we run and everything, quite frankly, that we do in life. A plan to get to where we want to can be thought about in terms of strategy. And really clever strategy is doing that in the most efficient way with what we have around us. Look at the tools that we have, the abilities that we have. That assessment, that self-assessment is a program I would love to encourage you to go through this week. Write it down, make some notes, assess yourself, come up with your own strengths and weaknesses. They're an interesting process to go through anyway, identifying what you're good at and not so good at. What are the biggest threats to where you want to get to? What's currently stopping you getting there? Why haven't you got there yet? And then try and figure out a plan to get to that desired end result. Give it a go. I'd love to know how you get on. 
Right, that is it for this week. So thank you ever so much, everybody. I really appreciate you all. The hour that you've taken to spend with me, please believe me, I'm so grateful for it. I know it's valuable to you as it is to all of us. Time is the most precious thing we possess. So for you giving up an hour of it to spend with me, I cannot say thank you enough. What I would love for you to do in return is to share this podcast, share the messages from this podcast, tell some people about it. And if you can do in any way, interact with this podcast, tag me in your shares. If you want to share it on social, put it on your WhatsApp groups, tell somebody else about it. And that's how we're going to grow it to become even bigger and most importantly, more impactful. If we can help more people to get better outcomes in life, then this podcast will have been a success. Right. I will see you again next week. But in the meantime, remember this mantra, refer back to it every single day as I do. Do the right things. Do the things right.